Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. I'm, uh, I'm really excited about this, this passage. It's um, another one of the, the amazing things that we have in the Word of God as we, we come to His Word, we see how He works in us, how He works through us, and um, my, my hope and my prayer is that you will all be blessed as I have been blessed um, in this passage. In 1887, a man of fame, education, and promise called Samuel Pierpoint Langley became the secretary of the Smithsonian Institute of America. He was a noted astronomer with an interest in aeronautics, and he devised aircraft designs that achieved multiple successful slingshot-propelled flights. In 1898, he secured 50,000 US dollars from the War Department to design a self-propelled aircraft So with external funding, absolutely no object, he had access to the best and the brightest minds in America for this mission. And his five-year journey, well, it made quite a splash. Two of them, actually, right into the Potomac. And then, in 1906, he died, having ceased all attempts to create the elusive flying machine. In 1893, there were two brothers, Orville and Wilbur Wright. They opened a bicycle repair shop that year. Business soared. And within two years, they began not just fixing bikes, but manufacturing them themselves. Their business became so successful that it provided capital for their true passion, the pursuit of flight. In 1903, while Langley was making a splash in the Potomac, the Wright brother, the Wright flyer, took flight not once, but three times in one day, self-propelled, each flight further than the last. Now, rumor has it that as soon as Langley heard that these brothers devised the right contraption to take flight, he quit. So what was the difference between Orville and Wilbur Wright and Samuel Langley? Langley and the Wright brothers, they had the same end goal. It was to create a heavier-than-air machine that was capable of self-propelled flight. Langley was well-educated. He was well-respected. He was very well-funded. The Wrights didn't have a college education. They were basically unknown, and they were self-funded by a successful business. Those are the factors here, but what else? What about their starting point? According to Simon Sinek, the difference was Orville and Wilbur were driven by a cause, by a purpose, by a belief. They believed that if they could figure out this flying machine, it could change the course of the world. Maybe for the better. Samuel Langley was different. He wanted to be rich. He wanted to be famous. He was in pursuit of the result. He was in pursuit of the riches. So ultimately, what was their difference? Well, 
A very key part of it was their purpose. Or in Simon Sinek's words, it was their why. Why they did anything, what their motivation was, the impact that they wanted to see happen as a result of all their work. Now as we continue our journey through Acts, we've come from Acts chapter 1 verse 8, our key verse and theme of our series, where Jesus tells his followers that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And our theme, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the very end of the earth. And we've come to Acts 18, where Paul, who was a persecutor of the gospel, turned into a promoter from militant animosity to apostle. He is on his second missionary journey. As we travel with Paul, we'll see a person whose purpose actually hasn't changed, but it's been redefined. It's been redirected towards God's intentions. As a Pharisee, Paul was zealous for God, but not according to knowledge. That's by his own admission. With the approval of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, he persecuted Christians, pursuing them all the way to Damascus. But on that road, on the way to Damascus, something happened that changed Paul's life forever. It changed everything. Being physically blinded by Jesus, his spiritual eyes were opened. And in three days of physical blindness, he had no choice but to meditate on the scriptures. And then, filtering his experience through them, he believed. And when he did, everything changed for him. In Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, Jesus says of Paul, He is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. See, God's purpose is declared of Paul. He is a chosen instrument. God's purpose for Paul is defined for him. He will carry my name. And God's purpose for Paul is direct, it directed him in his life and in his ministry. Now in the same way, Jesus' declaration to the disciples back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 substantiates this pattern for them, for Paul, and by extension to all of us who are believers. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here, that is legible. Always good to check. Now, as believers, Christ has declared that we are His. He has defined our purpose to be His witnesses. And through our lives, He directs us toward fulfilling that purpose. So I've titled our sermon for today, The Place of Purpose. But what is the place of purpose? Is it a location, like Corinth, that we're going to read about in just a few minutes? Back in the early 2000s, I was in missions training, and part of the ministry that I had was to disciple younger believers, younger men. And there was one in particular who he just, he really wanted to work in the Philippines. He really loved the Lord, and he could not wait to get to the Philippines. I've got to get there, John. As soon as I'm in the Philippines, I know I'll be serving the Lord. And my response was, and I'll call him Jacob, I said, Jacob, what are you doing now? It's great you want to serve him then. 
But as you are now, so you will be then. So start building what you want to be doing right now. Start building the, the habits, the spiritual disciplines right now. Because when you get to a different cultural context, a different language, everything is foreign. The food tastes amazing, but the preparation smells really weird. All these different things, you are going to need to lean back on who Christ has made you and what you know and what you have applied in a familiar context. His focus was on a location. He really wanted to serve the Lord. But our purpose cannot be a place. If it is, and we aren't in that location, then we're off purpose. It doesn't really make sense. As believers, our purpose is to be and also to bring flourishing life through a relationship with God. That is our purpose. His purpose for us and thus, our purpose really boils down to people, not a place. So when I speak of the place of purpose, I'll give it three expressions. First, it's priority. The purpose Christ has declared of, defined for, and directs us in takes precedence over everything else, every other aspect of our lives, in whatever place we find ourselves. And secondly, geographically. Wherever we're living, wherever we're working, wherever we're existing. That is the place for which he has called us to bring about his good purposes for that time. And thirdly, circumstantially, throughout our life, we are definitely going to experience highs. And a lot of us will experience lows. We will experience trials. We will experience thriving blessings, and also bitterness. But in all of this, God has a purpose to draw us to himself so that in time, we will be able to encourage others with the same encouragement that we receive when the going gets tough, when Christ encourages us during those trials. There are a few chapters we could look into. I'll name them if you want to write them down, but 2 Corinthians 1 and James 1 are beautiful passages about this, as is Romans 3, or sorry, Romans 5. But with that in mind, here's a one-minute overview of the passage and where we're going. In Acts 18, verses 1 through 4, Paul arrives in Corinth from Athens. He builds bridges. He applies his trade. He reasons for the faith. In this, we see the repetition of Paul's method for ministerial moving. In other words, how to change locations well for Christ. In verses 5 and 6, after a long separation, Silas and Timothy joined Paul, enabling him to focus more on testifying according to the call and the conviction of Christ. And once the message is rejected, Paul moves on but with a very clear conscience. In verses 7 through 11, God brings fruit across both Jews and Gentiles, and he addresses the personal barriers to fruitful ministry in Paul's own life, fear. Paul stays on discipling and training these new believers in the truth. We'll see that even in, fruit, even in fruitful and purposeful and prayerful ministry and living, there will be barriers. These, these may be long-term recurring battles, but God is greater. 
And then in verses 12 to 17, the Jews of the area take legal action against Paul and find the local authorities are very disinterested in defending or determining judgment over any matters having to do with religion. They're just not bothered. But in this, we see that God's promise to Paul back in the previous section that no one will attack you to harm you is proven true because God is faithful. So that's the narrative arc of our passage. A couple quick takeaways that we'll look at as Paul moves in, he connects, and he gets amongst it. Christian collaboration increases our capacity. It encourages conviction to preach and to live with a clear conscience. Verses 7 through 11, God brings about His purposes in and through His people. And verses 12 to 17, God proves that He is faithful and He calls us to be as well. So that's kind of where we're going. We'll touch on it, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be going more, more of a bit of a verse by verse and pulling out key themes. So with that, let's dive in. In Acts 18.1, we read that Paul moves from Athens to Corinth. Now, Athens, uh, we can zoom in one more slide if you would, Dan. There we go. So you've got it in the Mediterranean. Athens here on the right, Corinth on the left is a bottleneck of the north-south trade routes that were going on land. But it was also perfectly placed on the east-west trade routes by way of sea. And ships would come in from the east, they would drop off their cargo and then take it across the land. I think it was about like five kilometers or so. And then it would go west. This, this ability to come in and just transport goods over land a short distance cut off about 300 miles or so of really treacherous sailing south of Greece. Geographically, they're about 80 kilometers per, uh, apart. So roughly Newcastle to Singleton. But culturally, it was more like London to say, Canada. <laughs> Great place, I hear, never been. Um, no, Canada, Nui, you could say, well, here's why I say that. Athens was the ancient home to the philosophers, but Corinth was relatively new. It had been demolished about 200 years prior to when Paul was there, and then rebuilt 80 years before Paul's first visit. So whereas Athens was filled with the intellectual elites, the experiences everything Epicureans and the somber Stoics, as Dave spoke about last week, Corinth was filled with free men. Free men were men that had been slaves, that had bought or earned their freedom. They were lower on social status than any freeborn person. So culturally, culturally, incredibly different. But whereas the people of Athens lived to philosophize, their, their society had declined 400 years prior, and their influence in the region had declined. But Corinth was run by artisans, entrepreneurs, and as a result of the kind of people that were there and its location, it became the capital of the region. So whereas Athens was old and dying, Corinth was young and thriving, and it commercially overtook Athens becoming the capital of the region. But there's something else Corinth was known for. Their obsessive worship of the goddess of love. 
the goddess of fertility. There were, this is definitely not PG, there were thousands of temple prostitutes who roamed the streets, worshiping with their bodies and allowing others to do so as well. They also worshiped the male god of health and healing. One historian said that they would bring carvings of whatever their affliction was so they could be healed from it. And um, a large number of those carvings represented reproductive organs, which doesn't sound very ironic, but pretty accurate if you live in such a place. Corinth had such a reputation for unmitigated sexual expression that Corinthian became a slur for a prostitute. It is into this world, economically thriving, but morally declining, that God sends his messenger, Paul, with a purpose to bring God's gospel of grace, a message of radical reconciliation and complete restoration. I'm reminded of what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Believers, as his representatives, we are to reflect Christ's light and his life to those who are around us. We are not here in judgment, not in the way of condemnation. We are here to bring the truth in love. We have to speak the truth, but we do it from a place of love, desiring God's work. Christ said that we are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So let us be that city on the hill. Let us be that light of the world and be the salt of the earth as he has called us to be. In Acts uh, 18, 2-5, we see Paul's methodology when it comes to moving for ministry. Going into this new city, Paul finds common ground. He gets a job, and he seeks ministry opportunities straight away. He dives in. Now, this is Paul's plan for entering and evangelizing in a new city. And remember, he's all on his own. Silas and Timothy are still up in the north of Macedonia. And that's Paul's plan, is to go in, find common ground, get a job, find ministry opportunities. Now, you might have heard the phrase, proper planning prevents poor performance. But when we filter that mentality through these three Ds of declared, defined, and directed, and we filter it through Scripture, it's more like prayerful planning produces God's purposes. In Acts 17, verse 2, we're reminded that Paul's methodology for moving from ministry was to go first to the Jews. He always went to the synagogue first. And then, once he got kicked out, he moved on to the Gentiles. That was his plan. It was his blueprint, as Dave mentioned earlier. Uh, sorry, as Dave mentioned last week. To see God's purposes produced through us and through us effectively, one of the best things that we can do is to have a plan to deal with all that life is going to throw at us. 
that plan needs to be anchored in prayer and trusted to the Lord. There are a few verses that I, that I just wanted to bring up as well as far as Proverbs 16.3. It says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. In Proverbs 16.9, it says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. There's this beautiful interplay between the responsibility that God has given us to take initiative and to live our lives fruitfully and for His glory, but at the same time knowing that He is going to guide and direct every step that we take because He wants to be working in us and through us. In Ephesians 2.10, in the New Living Translation, it says, for we, speaking of Christians, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Believers, we may not feel like His masterpiece, but that's His declaration of us. A masterpiece in progress. Philippians 1.6 is another great reference to look into. It talks about how He has begun a good work in us and He will be faithful to, to complete it until the day of Christ. And not only are we His masterpieces in progress, He wants us to be His masterpieces on purpose. The best way that we can keep on purpose when life comes our way, or we enter a new phase, a new location, a new year. Goodness, we're nearly in December. It's time to start thinking about those resolutions, I guess. Or even a new day. One of the best things we can do is to go in with a prayerful plan and to trust God to produce the results and bring about His good, pleasing, and perfect will in our lives and through our lives. So let's look at how Paul does that in Corinth. First, he builds relationships. He meets a couple of other Jews. They're not believers, but they're Jews. They have the same foundation. They were kicked out of Rome. Paul is what we would call an itinerant speaker. He's always moving from one place to another. So there are different points of connection that he has with them. And like Paul, Aquila and Priscilla are tent makers. Whatever this new situation is that God leads us into, a new job, a new gym, a new geography, find common ground and build relationships. Next, Paul applies his trade. There's a common uh, Jewish phrase that says, do not make of the Torah a spade with which to dig. Or essentially, don't use your knowledge about spiritual things to get rich. Do hard work. Be a blessing to the people around you. Now, that's very applicable for Paul because he's going into a place where there's not an established church where people can come alongside him. And we'll address that in a little bit as well. But as Paul goes into a new place without a church, he is seeking to build a reputation starting from nothing. So he works as hard as he can to not be a burden on anyone, but instead to be a blessing to everyone. In the same way, God calls us to be wise stewards of everything that he has given us, from our talents to our treasures to our time. Our talents that are our opportunities could be found in our workplace. Our workplaces are ministry platforms 
Sometimes that's directly with our coworkers or with our clients. And who knows, that the impact of speaking to one life can be exponential. So whether you're a doctor, an engineer, a teacher, a lawyer, maybe a defense worker, even marketers can be used by God. Sometimes. Anyone that we interact with is part of our sphere of ministry, and God wants us to be a blessing to them. There's also the aspect of our treasures. What is it that we value? Christ says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is it our possessions and our finances, these things that we can't take with us? And yes, of course, there's wise stewardship of being able to leave something on behind and being able to bless others financially. But if that's our purpose, is just to make money. It's not going to take, we're not going to be able to take it with us to eternity. But relationships, if we value those, that's what God has for us. We can theoretically take those with us into eternity. And that's why God has left us here. And then there's this element of our time. Where we spend our time matters. As I mentioned earlier, our workplace is a great ministry platform. 37 and a half viable ministry hours in the working week. But John, you say, we can't outright evangelize to our colleagues. So how can this be a ministry opportunity? How do we do that wisely? I mentioned earlier that I was in missions training. It was with a, an organization that focused on tribal church planting. And we would go, the goal was to see an established, flourishing, maturing church in a place that had never heard the gospel before. And many of these places didn't even have their language written down. So they didn't, clearly didn't have the Bible translated already. So imagine going into a new place, you don't speak the language, it's not written down, you have to try and figure everything out, and your goal is to, to have a thriving church established. Where does evangelism start in that? Well, true, technically, evangelism starts when you can speak the language, you understand the culture, you've got the Bible translated into their language, but what about before that? Up to that point where the Bible is translated into their language and you can start presenting the gospel verbally, you're building relationship in a phase that we called pre-evangelism. Pre-evangelism is the time and the relational capital that we invest in others, reflecting the gospel in front of them before saying a single word about the gospel to them in the hopes that we will live the gospel alongside of them. We can do a lot of pre-evangelism in 37 and a half hours a week, but that's only a small chunk of our time. If you've got a a 30-minute commute, that's five hours a week of traveling. If you have a decent amount of sleep, that's seven hours a night sleeping. That leaves us with about 74 and a half hours per week, 10, roughly 10 and a half a day. About 43% of our week is not work, sleeping, or commuting. That's it. 74 and a half hours for family, for making food, eating food, for fellowship, fitness, keeping the house in order, hobbies, TV, all the other things that fill up our time. 
I just read this week that the average Aussie spends two hours per day on social media, whether it's YouTube or Facebook, Insta, LinkedIn. I imagine the younger demographics, younger, uh, younger Aussies with TikTok spend a lot more. I think their metric is something along the lines of an hour and a half time on platform per day for their demographic, which to me is insane, but hey, they've got algorithms to keep, us, to keep our attention. So our viable ministry hours, after that two hours on social media and the rest of the things we need to do every day is about eight hours a day. And thinking about it this week, Monday to Thursday, when I work, I have fewer than two hours per day with my toddlers because of when they wake up, when I go to work, and when I get home. Accountants know a lot about people by watching their spending habits. We can learn about, a lot about our priorities, where our heart is at, by tracking where we spend our time. Are we spending our time or are we investing it? Again, where and how we spend our time is of the utmost importance. It's a non-renewable resource. So let's strive to be good stewards of the talents that God has given us, the treasures that he's given us, and also the time that he's given us in whatever place he has positioned us. And thirdly from this passage, Paul reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath to the Jews and the Greeks. See, Paul started with an audience that was familiar with his message and he thought would be the most receptive. So takeaway from this is that when building a ministry platform, ask questions to gauge responsiveness. Find those intelligent questions to draw out who might be interested in spiritual things and who might not be. And then my recommendation is to start with those who seem the most interested. But again, follow the Spirit's leading because sometimes He wants you to speak with the hardest nut to crack because He's going to work in them for His glory as well. Comes, always comes back down to prayerfully relying on the Lord. So as Paul moves from Athens to Corinth, he's intentional and strategic. He builds relational bridges through work, and he reasons at every opportunity. But humanly speaking, he's still alone in Corinth. We may not, um, we may not have peace with our circumstances, and I imagine Paul didn't either. I imagine in this situation of him being alone, that he was feeling uneasy. Maybe that's what led him to write to the Philippian believers that God will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on him. We might not have peace with our circumstances, but we can, and God promises we will have peace with his purposes. We must always prayerfully, be prayerfully progressing, even and especially when we feel alone. Maybe, um, maybe you can think back to coming out of COVID lockdowns and what that was like. Not having human connection for months, for ages. You could FaceTime with everybody, but what about those friends that you could FaceTime with or you could call, but then seeing them in person, what that was like. I, have, I imagine that that gives us a bit of a glimpse of, as to how Paul felt in Acts 18, 5 to 7, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. 
And in these verses, we see collaboration, we see conviction, and a clear conscience. Silas and Timothy arrive when they arrive. Paul's ministry capacity completely changes. He goes from a one-man band who's working as hard as he can during the day, ministering on the weekend, to all of a sudden having people that can also work, they can also raise finances and increase the income and release him to do evangelism. But also, now there was one evangelizing in Paul, now there are three. So, the, the increase already of capacity has exponentially grown. Paul also moves on from reasoning from the Scriptures to testifying. Now, to me, it's a fun, just a fun little change, but testifying according to the Old Testament required multiple witnesses. So prior to this, Paul, the only believer, is saying, this is what the Scriptures say. Now he has other witnesses. So when he goes to the Jews, he can actually testify to them and give a legal case as to why he believes that the Scriptures reveal that their Messiah is, has come. Believers, we must work together and contribute our talents, our treasures, and our time to representing Christ according to our capabilities and so increase the capacity of God working in us and through us. In verse 5, it tells us that Paul was occupied with the Word. The NET puts it this way. It says, Paul became wholly absorbed with proclaiming the Word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Years later, Paul would put this into his own words. When he writes to the Corinthians, he says, For the love of Christ controls us. Since we've concluded this, that Christ died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised. Have you ever met one of those people who can seemingly turn any conversation into an evangelistic opportunity? You could be talking about the price of flour going up or your car breaking down, and somehow they could turn that conversation to Christ. This is the kind of passion that Paul has. He's always looking for bridges to present the gospel. He spent all his time trying to convince the Jews that their Messiah had come and his name was Jesus. Paul recognized that he's not his own. He was bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. Are we also driven by that love of Christ to the degree that we could say with Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ, who died for me, lives in me. When we are, and this happens at different phases of our lives, it leads to some amazing opportunities and likely some strong opposition, maybe even some outright rejection, as it did in the case of Paul. So how should we respond when the gospel is rejected? Well, honestly, it depends on our audience. We've got to keep in mind that Paul is speaking to the Jews. They, he's saying, your Messiah has come. And so he does two things. Visually, he represents, he speaks to them visually and verbally. Visually, he shakes off his garments. This is what God told the prophets to do in the Old Testament when their message was rejected. But then verbally, he says, I am innocent. Your blood is on your own heads. I've flipped that intentionally. 
Paul can say, I am innocent, because he had been faithful to proclaim the truth to them. If he had not proclaimed the truth to them, their rejection would have been on his head. But because he had proclaimed the, the, uh, Christ to them, their rejection was on their own head. And he's saying, I'm innocent. I have done everything that I can do. I have done what God has called me to do. And now the response is on you. It always is. So in some ways, this is about an, it's an in-house matter. And when presenting the gospel to unbelievers, we wouldn't have that same response. Paul is that bold because he's speaking to the Jews and it is their rejection. In Galatians 6, we're exhorted that if we see a believer who is in sin, we are to confront them. Why? So they feel guilty? So they feel ashamed? No, so that they can be restored. Every believer, according to 2 Corinthians, is a new creation in Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are told that new believers are declared ambassadors of God, making His appeal through us, be reconciled to God. Now, I'll go into it because it's a fun illustration. Um, everyone knows what a, the life cycle of a butterfly, right? You've got this little larva that crawls along the ground, and then it goes onto a leaf, goes into a cocoon, and it emerges through squeezing out of this cocoon into this beautiful butterfly. And whereas it used to crawl along the ground, now it is meant to fly. If it wanted to, yes, it could go and it could crawl along the ground again, but now it is free to be so much more. Imagine, for the sake of argument, that there's a larva that grows up in the dung. It's like a dung caterpillar. And it metamorphosizes into this beautiful butterfly, but every so often it's like, man, I just really miss that dung. And it flies down and it crawls around in, in the muck and in the mire. Now, this is a really silly, pretty stupid illustration, hopefully a memorable one. But isn't it also an accurate description of some of our day-to-day -day experiences when we are fighting with the flesh? How sin can just so easily entangle us and just draw us back. We, unlike a caterpillar, we haven't become new creatures of the same ilk that can now fly. We, according to 2 Corinthians, God has declared that we are new creations. He defines our calling as ambassadors of reconciliation. And He directs us whenever we will seek Him. So when one of us stumbles, and we all do, it's not an excuse, it's a fact. Each of us need to lovingly come alongside, encourage that ministry of reconciliation, and draw us back to the way that God would have us go. In Acts 18, Paul does everything that he can to persuade and to testify to the truth of the Jews in Corinth. When they reject their Messiah, he makes it clear, and he says, from now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. With that directed by the Holy Spirit, he moves on with a clear conscience. And in verses 7 through 11, we see God brings the fruit. I love this verse. Paul says, now I go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, who was way across the city. 
No. Look what it says. His house was right next door to the synagogue. I love it. He's like, I'm, I'm going to the Gentiles, but I am staying right here because my ministry is for the Jews and it is for the Gentiles. It's amazing. See, sometimes God calls us to a new place, but it might not be far. It might be across the street. And as a result, verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. It gives beautiful color to Paul's comment in Romans 11 that he wanted to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that they would accept their Messiah. And all along, we see Paul's mentality was to, was to be the apostle to the Gentiles, as God said, but to the Jew first. And I imagine looking at the fact that Crispus, his whole household, and many of the other Corinthians became believers. Paul is on a bit of an emotional high or a spiritual high because of what God is doing, but in his history, that's not necessarily a good thing when people start becoming believers. If you think back last week, he was in Athens. A few people became believers. Before that, he was in Berea, where quite a few people became believers because they were, they were eager to learn the truth. Prior to that, he was in Thessalonica, where a lot of people became believers, and the Jews got really jealous and ended up throwing him out, driving him out. And then we could mention Lystra, where many came to faith, and where they stoned Paul to death. And Derby, Iconium, Antioch, so it goes. Paul shook things up. Rather, God shook things up through Paul. And to me, it makes perfect sense that as Paul starts to see this happening again, God is doing amazing things, that all of a sudden, I think, he becomes fearful. In verses 9 to 10, it says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city. See, in times of trial, we need to remember not who is on our side, but whose side we are on. God encourages Paul, and he says, you are going to stay here. I have something great to do for you, but don't be afraid. In Paul's history, when, things, when amazing things happened, he came under amazing persecution. There's an incredible story in 2 Kings chapter 6 where Elisha, the prophet of God, is surrounded by a Syrian army. And his servant says, <laughs> basically, Elisha, we're going to die. And in, you can go and read this, uh, this, this whole story um, later on. It's 2 Kings 6, verses 15 to 23. But Elisha says, he prays to God. He says, O oh Lord... Please open the eyes of my servant that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all surrounding Elisha. The rest of the story is beautiful. An enemy army is delivered in the, into the hands of the Israelite king, and instead of killing that enemy army, they give them food and water. They send them back to Syria, 
and the Syrians never attack again. Or, well, they don't attack again in that generation. Wouldn't that be amazing to see, especially right now? Now, such is the victory that God has granted us over sin, over physical death. Well, we will physically die, but it's not the end. And over the spiritual forces that are waging war against him and against us as his servants. Paul was experiencing amazing fruit in ministry, but it seems he was also afraid of what might happen based on his experiences. So, let me ask this question. What fruit is God working in our lives? And what could hold us back from the, from the impact that God wants to have? Is there a barrier that's standing in the way? Like fear could have been to Paul. Are there barriers that we're putting up? Whatever comes to our mind, we must bring it before him. We must pray to him to say, Lord, come have your way in me. And what if we were to pray that not only about ourselves, but about our families, about our community, about our church, about this city? D.L. Moody said, the world has yet to see what God can do through a person who is fully consecrated to God. What if we as a church full of individuals were so fully consecrated to God? Father, start with me. Continue your good work in me to completion. Let my old man stay in the grave and let Christ live in me. There's so much more to say on this passage. I won't because we're after five. Um, but I do want to point out one thing. At the end of this passage, um, and we're not going to put a slide up to it, but if you turn in your Bibles to um, verse 17, there's it's the end of this account where the Jews had brought Paul before, the, before um, the ruling authorities. And God had promised to Paul, nothing's going to happen to you. No one is going to harm you. And God is faithful in that. No one harms Paul. Um, as Paul is standing before Gallio, Gallio being accused by the Jews... Gallio is just completely disinterested. Paul doesn't even, he doesn't have to defend himself. He doesn't even get a chance. In fact, after the accusation, Gallio drives out Paul's person, his accusers. Such is the faithfulness of God to Corinth. But there's one, one name that I want to draw attention to. Instead of Paul being beaten, all the Jews sees Sosthenes the now ruler of the synagogue. They drag him in front of the tribunal and they beat him. Now, Gallio pays no attention to this, but God did. I'm not exactly certain if this is the same Sosthenes. The historic record doesn't show whether it is, but I, I have my inclinations. In 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, listen to how he opens this. He says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ and to and our brother Sosthenes. 
to the church of God who is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints, together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that Paul in his greeting doesn't mention Silas or Timothy, but he opens his letter of exhortation, a letter of conviction, and even chastisement to the church in Corinth. These believers who, if you read the letters to the Corinthians, they seem to be behaving a little bit more like dung beetles than butterflies. He opens it with the name of Sosthenes. And yet, after that introduction, he continues to say, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace God has given us in Christ, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I love Paul says, grace to you, this undeserved favor, this blessing is ours. And peace, the Hebrew shalom, it's a state in which nothing is broken and nothing is missing. Everything is complete as it was meant to be. And that grace and peace comes from God. Not some far-off impersonal force, but our Father. And from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whether this is a proclamation of Christ as our authority, as master, or as deity, as part of the triune God, the impact and the implication is the same. Undeserved favor, uncorrupted flourishing come from and are available to us only in Christ. It's with those declarations that Paul writes to the, those believers, and he writes to remind them that as new creations, God has called them to be ambassadors of reconciliation, and that when we rely on Him, when they rely on Him, and there's an application to us, God's Holy Spirit will direct them to accomplish the good works that He has set apart for them to accomplish in Christ. See, we've seen that the place of purpose is not a location. It's not a place, necessarily. It's not a vocation. It's a prioritization of what God has declared of us, what He has defined for us, and what He will direct us to accomplish. If we are, if we are to be fruitful, we must rely on the Holy Spirit. And remember that prayerful planning produces God's purposes. So let me throw a question as we end. One year from now, November 26th, 2024, will you and I be the same people as we are today? Will we be in the same circumstances that we are today? The same place, maybe the same struggles, the same worries or fears or passions and hopes? Will CCN be the same church with the same people? at the same stage of church life. Now, I love you all, but I sure hope not.
God has something great for us. And I can't wait where we're going, wait to see where we are going to be one year from now when we have prayerfully trusted in Him. So the question is, what are we trusting Him for? And what are we relying on Him for? So like Paul, let's connect. Let's build bridges. Be wise stewards of all that God has given us and get amongst it and do the work. Let's collaborate so that we can increase our ministry capacity with conviction and a clear conscience. And then let's see how God brings about His good purposes in us, changing us to be more like Christ, and through us, making an impact in this city, in our communities, maybe even in the world. Because He is faithful, and He has called us to be faithful as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much that You are a good and gracious King that you are a wise, a loving God who has called us, who has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Even and especially when it feels like we don't have it. God, I pray that you would lead us and that you would guide us, that you would give each of us your purpose, that you would show us what you have for us to accomplish. And maybe, maybe that is just more time with you in prayer. Maybe that is moving to a new location for the sake of ministry or being moved to a new, a new location knowing that that is where we will minister. Maybe it is evangelizing a friend, a family member, a stranger. We don't know, Lord, but we thank you that you do. And we thank you that you are the one who is at work in us and through us and you are faithful to complete the work you have started. Be our peace. Be our hope. And be hope and peace through us. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.